Some like it hot, and some like it cool. Hi, I'm Larry. Whichever way you like it, you'll love Jazz Straight Ahead. So join me Wednesdays, 6 to 8 p.m. That's Jazz Straight Ahead. Just jazz, real jazz. Wednesdays, 6 to 8, on WERU-FM. Support for WERU health-related programming comes from the Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information, publishing three weekly newspapers, the Weekly Packet, Island Advantages, the Castine Patriot, the annual Bay Community Register, the Summer Seasonal Guide, and more. Also on the web at www.penobscotbaypress.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. A special edition of Healthy Options with host Cynthia Swan is up next. Hi, welcome to Healthy Options. Today, we're going to take that topic of vaccine safety that we talked about earlier this month a little further. So let me introduce my guest. My guest is Neil Z. Miller. He's a medical research journalist and a natural health advocate. He's the author of numerous articles and books on vaccines, including Vaccine Safety Manual for Concerned Families and Health Practitioners. He is a frequent guest on radio and TV talk shows, including PBS, Donahue, and the Montel Williams Show, where he's often seen and heard debating doctors and other health officials. Mr. Miller has a degree in psychology, He's a member of Mensa, the International High IQ Society, and is the director of Think Twice Global Vaccine Institute. He lives in northern New Mexico with his family. Mr. Miller began his crusade against mandatory vaccines when his son was born. Very little data could be found on this topic. And despite the many problems uncovered in Mr. Miller's research, he does not tell parents, or anyone for that matter, to reject shots. Mr. Miller has publicly debated the pros and cons of mandatory vaccines with several pediatricians and other health practitioners, including the chief medical epidemiologist for the National Immunization Program at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He conducts lectures throughout the United States and is available to discuss his research on vaccines. A website with more of his information, www.thinktwice.com. He is also the founder of the Think Twice Global Vaccine Institute. Welcome, Neil. Thanks for joining us this morning. Well, thanks for having me, Cynthia. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's dive right into it. What led you to write your vaccine safety manual? Well, I've been doing this for more than 20 years. I've, you know, vaccine safety manual is just the culmination of my, my work over, over those 20 years. Uh, this is actually my sixth or, se- or, sixth or seventh book that I've, I've written over that, that period of time. It all began when my, ch- my own children were born. Now, your book talks about the funding sources for vaccine studies. Can you share that information with listeners? Well, the funding sources are, there's a lot of corruption built into the system. I mean, you know, a lot of times it's the manufacturers themselves that are, that are funding the studies that, that are going to be used to license and recommend the very vaccines that, that the manufacturers are producing. Uh, this is permitted by, by, uh, uh, as the system stands. In fact, in June of 2000, Congress investigated 
this process and found that 50, more than 50% of the members on the two, uh, uh, the CDC, the FDA and the CDC committees that license and recommend these vaccines, more than 50% of those members had conflicts of interest where they were in some way beholden to the manufacturers. So there's a lot of, a lot of these studies that are coming out. Um, you know, these lead authors, lead researchers of these critical studies are, are beholden to the manufacturers in some way. So there's a lot of corruption in, built into the system that really needs to be, be cleaned up. And that people are unaware of the general population or general public unless they dig beneath the surface is unaware of this. Oh, absolutely. In fact, a new study came out last year that showed that one-third of all studies that, 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 that are published eventually are proven to be untrue, to be, to, to, you know, the results are, are shown to be false. And this is, you know, a large part of many of these studies are coming out of these, you know, the pharmaceutical industry. We, we've got these studies, you know, and I put that around quotes, um, you know, that come out, you know, saying these vaccines are safe and effective and, 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 and many children are being damaged from these shots. Well, let's move to thimerosal, which is a hot topic, aluminum and formaldehyde, because those are a few of the toxicants that are contained in vaccines. Can you give um, a little more information about how those are in the vaccines and, um, and why? Well, there's lots of different chemicals in these vaccines. In fact, I, I, I often refer to vaccines as drugs um, because that's exactly what they are. You know, a lot of parents forget that when they give vaccines to their kids, they're giving them drugs. And, and they, they contain, many of these vaccines still contain thimerosal, which is uh, 50% of, uh, thimerosal is essentially mercury, okay? And, and uh, a lot of people think that mercury was taking out, taken out of vaccines uh, several years ago, but several vaccines still contain high concentrations of mercury. And, uh, for example, the flu vaccines, most flu vaccines still contain very high concentrations of mercury, 25 micrograms per dose. Now... Uh, mercury is placed in vaccines to save the manufacturer a few pennies because if they, if they produce single-dose vials of vaccines, they don't have to put mercury into these vaccines. In fact, they don't have to put them into multi-dose vials either, but they do as an antibacterial preservative. You see it's cheaper for the vaccine manufacturer to produce 10 doses or 20 doses of a vaccine in a single vial. And then if, that, that, if, that, if there's 10 different doses or 20 doses, and 10 or 20 different needles need to go into that uh, for 10 or 20 different children. And so they put mercury in as an antibacterial preservative. But they only do it to save a few pennies because it's cheaper to, you know, like I said, to put, put it into, you know, instead of making single-dose single vials of vaccines, they, they want to, you know, want to make uh, multi-dose vials. So now, aluminum, a, now, let me so mention aluminum. Mm-hmm. Aluminum is put in vaccines for a completely different reason. And, and, and aluminum, there are many, many studies, I document these in my books, um, especially in vaccine safety manual, there's ample documentation of the detrimental neuro- neurological damage that has been linked to aluminum. And, and we're injecting kids with, with very high concentrations of aluminum, and they put aluminum in vaccines as an adjuvant. An adjuvant is just a fancy word, meaning that it will stimulate the immune system. But stimulating the immune system is also a fancy word. It's just a euphemism for, for meaning that they're injecting aluminum into your body because it's, a, it's an extreme irritant. It, it, it irritates the body extremely, and, and it wakes up the immune cells, and, and they, they overreact because they have this foreign toxin in the body. Um, but the FDA, in fact, I've got up on my website at thinktwice.com, I've got a free e-book up there 
and and it's on aluminum in vaccines. And I've got I've uncovered a secret FDA document where they are aware of the exact levels of aluminum that are dangerous to kids. And then if you go and add up the content that's in the recommended vaccines, babies after two month vaccinations are receiving 50 times the safety level that the FDA is aware of. Neil, let me interrupt here. What about um, adults? That, because aluminum, isn't that also in the flu vaccine? Yeah, well, aluminum's in, aluminum is in everything. Actually, actually, aluminum is not in the flu vaccine. It's not. It's uh, just the thimerosal. It, yes, thimerosal is in flu. Each vaccine has to be looked at individually. Now, there, are, there is aluminum in several different uh, adult vaccines. It just, it's just currently not being used in, in the, current, the currently licensed of flu vaccines here in the United States do not contain aluminum. They do contain high concentrations of mercury. But to answer your question more directly, yes, several adult vaccines do contain um, aluminum. Do we know what the levels are of toxicity for adults? I'm thinking of the elderly. Also. Well, they, the, the studies aren't, aren't being done, but there's a lot of speculation that, you know, this may be linked to, you know, Alzheimer's disease and, and several other neurological disorders. But the again, the, the you know the you know a lot of the the research dollars, um, the FDA and the CDC and the National Institutes of Health, you know, <clears throat> Academy of Sciences, they're not devoting the money to to these studies to to determine, you know, the 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 effect that that this is having on on adults. Yeah, let's shift to formaldehyde. Well, formaldehyde is used in certain vaccines to um, to what they call inactivate. Uh, the vaccine. For example, when they put a live virus into a vaccine, um, you, you know, you can catch that disease. Um, but what they're trying to do is they're trying to reduce the, the, the chance that you'll catch that full-blown disease. And so they put formaldehyde in to uh, what they call inactivate the, 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 the live virus or, or to weaken it. It's a form of attenuation, a form of weakening it so that it doesn't, doesn't give you the full-blown disease. Um, as many people that uh, you know, as, as many people that have taken live virus vaccines know, um, that's not always the case. You know, a lot of people contact me all the time. They've taken the flu vaccine, say a live virus flu vaccine, and then they they, they come down with a full blown you know case. Um, of course, the FDA or CDC tries to deny that this is related to the vaccine, but it's absolute nonsense. I mean, that's that's exactly what the vaccine is designed to do: is to mimic disease. Okay, so. Devil's advocate, the proponents of the vaccines, they argue that these amounts are insignificant and they're not harmful. So, okay, you said that that's not true to um, to uh, in all cases. It's absolutely untrue. In fact, they've got no studies to prove that. That's just a that's just a flat uh, statement that I mean, anybody can make any statements. And, and in fact, when I when I discuss vaccines with medical doctors and, and people in the medical industry, I, I'm, I'm always astounded at how often they will just make blanket statements with no documentation. I'll often ask them, where's your documentation? Because they don't have documentation. There's no documentation about uh, the safety of these levels. In fact, in fact, just the opposite. I document how unsafe these, these levels of mercury are, how unsafe these levels of, of uh, aluminum are in these vaccines. The studies are showing that this is very dangerous. In fact, the government has a lot of parents would be be be, be surprised to learn that the government has and operates a secret uh, database. They they have over right now in their secret database the names of over three hundred thousand people, mostly children, who have been damaged or killed by vaccines over the past few years. 
and and um, you know, and in fact, when every time a parent goes into the doctor's office to buy a vaccine, they are uh, paying a tax on that on that vaccine. If that vaccine costs twenty dollars or thirty dollars or fifty dollars or hundred dollars, some of that money goes into a congressional fund because the, the government has calculated, you know, how many people they believe will be killed or permanently damaged from these vaccines, and, that, and then this money will be used to, to compensate these parents. So they know that these vaccines will, will, will damage some of these children. And, yes, some of that damage is directly related to mercury and aluminum and some of these other chemicals inside these vaccines. Neil, how did you get access to that information about that secret database? Because, because it's, it's, it's available. In fact, I, I post the, the website uh, on, my, on my... Technically, it's not secret. Technically, it's just unknown and unadvertised. So it's it obscure, in other words. It's, it's kind obscure. of hidden, tucked it's, away? Exactly. It's tucked away. P- people don't know about it, and the FDA and the CDC aren't going to tell people about it because they don't want to scare people. Um, but I have that uh, information posted on my website. If they get up at thinktwice.com, they can actually get into that database and actually search. They can actually punch in a search. They can punch in chickenpox vaccine or pertussis vaccine, and they can see the types of reactions that these vaccines are causing. They can punch in how many children were hospitalized after a certain vaccine, how many were killed after a certain vaccine. All that information is accessible. Based on your research on this topic, can you speak to how vaccination can actually lower immune system function? Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring this up, and and we're going to be talking about uh, flu and swine flu. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to mention a, a, a study. In fact, this is another secret study. Um, it just came out a couple weeks ago in Canada, mm-hmm. and, and they're trying to get this published. And it's significant, and, and all of the, the medical industry is trying to snuff out this story. They don't want this information to be released. What is that information? Well, Canada studied 13 million people that had received uh, seasonal flu vaccines last year. And they found that anybody that received a seasonal flu vaccine last year is twice as likely to contract swine flu this year. And, and this is highly significant because it, it's, it's, it's uh, more than 13 million people. In fact, Canada is not vaccinating people with seasonal flu this year. It's the only country, one of the, the few countries that is refusing to vaccinate their population with seasonal flu vaccine because they take this, this uh, study very seriously. They're, they're concerned that if they vaccinate with seasonal flu, they're going to aggravate the number of uh, people, they're going to they're increase the number of people that are going to come down with swine flu. So that, that speaks directly to your question of, of, are these vaccines lowering the immune system? The theory on why this would take place, why would somebody who took a seasonal flu last year Become, uh, become more likely to, to contract swine flu this year? Well, the theory is that the immune system is being committed or overcommitted to, um, to you know, basically uh, fighting that low-grade infection that was injected into these people that took these seasonal flu vaccines, and now it's unable to adequately mount a defense to the swine flu when it becomes exposed to the swine flu. So that's, that's a good example right there of, of the potential of vaccines to actually lower immunity and make us more susceptible to opportunistic infections. Now, Neil, do you know who was the source of this Canadian study? Was it conducted by the government? Was it, who conducted the study itself? Yeah, the study was conducted 
the study was conducted by the health ministries. Of uh, it was by the uh, conducted by uh, two doctors out of the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. It was their um, equivalent to our our CDC, and and the health ministries of, of several provinces took this extremely seriously, and they said we're gonna we're gonna stop this. Now there was a Dr. Rubenstein that had access to the data. He looked at this and he said there there are a large number of authors in that study, all of them excellent and credible researchers. And the sample size is very large, Mm -hmm. 13 million people taking from the central reporting systems in three provinces. The research is solid. And and now, because of this uh, brotherhood that exists within the vaccine industry, they're having a hard time to get this published into peer-reviewed journals. And and so I I believe that this information only got out because they leaked it out, you know, because they're not allowed to speak uh, about their, their, their research. The lead authors are, are not permitted to speak about their research until it's published in a peer-reviewed journal. So is and it that, like there's a gag order until it gets published? That's exactly right. There's a gag order until it gets published, but they're not publishing it because, because they're, they, you know, they don't want this information to be released. So what kind of a bind is that? That's, that's not r- r- real concern about, about the facts and the truth and science. And that's not real concern about people. You know, these are real lives that, that, that are being affected. Here in the United States, they don't give a damn. They're, they're, they're still giving the seasonal flu vaccine, even though the studies and the information that, and the data indicates that anybody that t- took that, takes that seasonal flu vaccine is, is twice as likely to contract swine flu. Well, they were mandating that um, health care workers in New York take the H1N1 swine flu um, uh, vaccination, and then I've heard that's been revoked. Well, um, I'm not sure if it's been completely revoked. I know it's been put on hold. I, I, you know, um, they, they were going to hold a hold a. I think it was revoked. I think you're right. I, I know that they had originally the the, the, the lawsuit uh, put a stay on it until the end of. I believe it was until the end of this month when they were going to actually hear the case. I find that ironic, though. I want to mention this. Look, I'm 100 percent behind the nurses um, on this that and and the healthcare workers that they should not be forced. To take this vaccine, okay? Um, nobody should be forced to take a vaccine. But I do want to say something. There is a, li- a bit of irony, or even uh, even some uh, some karma, uh, you know, karmic retribution, if I if I can use that term mm-hmm. here, because over my 20 years, 20 some plus years of of researching vaccines and dealing with parents who've been hurt by vaccines, I will tell you that I have gotten more complaints about nurses. Than, than even doctors, from parents that, that go in to take their kid in to, to get the shots and they don't want to give the kid the vaccines. And nurses, in so many cases, have taken the parents even out of their own hands and have vaccinated these kids against the parents' w- will, against the parents' wishes. And I've seen so many cases in, where parents go into the hospital and they have, they have told them, I don't want my baby to get the hepatitis B vaccine. And as soon as they turn their head after they've given birth to the, you know, or take their, their, you know, you know, the nurse takes these babies and vaccinates these babies against hepatitis B, even against the parents' wishes. And I have seen this so many times. So when I saw that the nurses were on the front lines, um, you know, where they were being forced to take these vaccines, I thought there was some irony, you know, to this whole process, Mm. Um, you know. uh, Yeah, that's 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 frightening that. yeah, that it's done against the parents' wishes, and especially in cases where you give ample um, ample examples in your book about uh, children who are sick or even adults who are, are sick and then getting injected 
um, when they have an illness and how that's contraindicated. Oh, yeah, well, that's contraindicated. You're not supposed to give children vaccines when they're sick. Their immune system is already being overtaxed. Um, you know, and the big problem, you know, look, I have another free ebook. It's a free ebook. It's very easy. It takes people 10 minutes to read. It's up online at thinktwice.com, and it's called Overdosed Babies. Babies mm-hmm. receive one, uh, by the time the baby is one and a half years of age, they receive 38 vaccine drug doses. And, and um, at their two-month, four-month, and six-month uh, doctor visits, these babies are receiving eight drugs, eight vaccine drugs. And, and I ask parents, when was the last time you took eight drugs? When did you ever in your life take eight drugs at the same time? That's what you're giving your baby when you take them in at two months and four months and six months. They're getting eight different drugs injected into their bodies. And I ask parents, if you took eight drugs at the same time, would you be more surprised if you did or did not have a serious reaction? And, and so this is a, this is a huge problem, um, you know, and it speaks to this idea of, of, you know, a sick child. When a child is sick, their, their immune system is already overtaxed, um, and they're more likely to, to have damage, you know, uh, especially if they have a genetic predisposition to, to problems with the vaccines, which we don't know ahead of time. But these babies that are getting eight vaccines at the same time this is overtaxing the immune system. The immune system has to wake up and it's saying, oh, my God, I've got eight different drugs here that I have to, you know, deal with. And then imagine if the child goes into the doctor's office and is sick on the same day when he's getting all these shots. But, but I discussed that and, and, and the ramifications in this free ebook, and um, very, very important. Those two e-books I, I highly recommend. You don't have to pay a, pay a penny for them. It's, it's aluminum in vaccines. And and uh, and overdosed babies. Let's talk about systemic reactions because that can occur as a result of the vaccines. Why why are physicians saying that these systemic reactions are normal? And then also, what are systemic reactions? Well, sy- systemic reactions are are just sort of like body body wide body wide reactions reactions that that are affecting. Uh, you know, basically, it's, it's when the, the doctors are saying that, that when a child gets a vaccine or when an adult gets a vaccine and they come down with a headache, muscle aches, fever, chills, fatigue, vomiting, diarrhea, that, that these are normal reactions, that these are, you know, that this, you know, is to be expected and nothing to be concerned about. But, 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 but these are things to be concerned about because your, your body is saying, I've got something in my system that doesn't belong here, and, and it's fighting it in, in extreme ways. In fact, they oftentimes will recommend to lower the, the, the fever. And, and many of the studies, in fact, I document these in my books, in the vaccine safety manual, I've got at least two studies in there that show that giving fever reducers, you know, giving aspirin or Tylenol or anything like that to reduce the fever um, of a vaccine is actually more, more dangerous than, than letting the fever run, run its course. I mean, the, fe- the fever is the body's way of, of fighting. Right, fighting, fighting it off. Um, I, I, how does the prevalence of vaccines, vaccinations in, in this country, in our country, um, compare with the other industrialized countries? Oh, we're the most vaccinated nation on the planet. In fact, we export, uh, a lot of people think, you know, we export, uh, uh, you know, a lot of different, you know, computer technology and, and uh, you know, you know, biotech and things like that. But you know what else? We, 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 you know, we're the largest exporter of autism. And, and uh, 
and uh, neurological disorders. Now, how is that? Why do you make that statement? How is that so? Well, because most other countries follow our example. And our medical, um, our medical uh, industry here in the United States is extremely powerful and wields influence throughout the planet. And, and you know, every time we, you know, produce a new vaccine or we put a new vaccine on our childhood schedule, we go around the country, and by we I mean our medical industry, our pharmaceutical, manufa- our, our vaccine manufacturers, and they, they exert extreme influence, extreme pressure on other countries to, to follow our lead. And as other countries follow our lead, their rates of autism, as they begin to add, add vaccines to their, their schedules, their rates of autism, their rates of immunological and neurological disorders uh, directly correlate with, with, with the addition of these new vaccines. I mean, we, we've got, uh, you know, I mean, once, you know, if you go to Ch- China and, and uh, you know, India and these other countries where they've started introducing some of these new vaccines that we introduced and brought here, you know, initially here, you know, you can trace this. You can see the, the increases of autism and, and whatnot around, the, around in, in other countries, and, and especially in third world countries, as, as, you know, as well. So, so yeah, we're, we're, um, we are the most vaccinated country in the world, and despite that, we have one of the worst uh, infant mortality rates on the planet. In fact, I'll tell you something. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, we had the worst, uh, we had the best infant, well, the second best, actually, infant mortality rate in the world, okay? This was before we introduced uh, immunization campaigns where we were going to vaccinate all kids, uh, you know, to get into school. You know, that started in the 1960s. But in the late 1950s and early 1960s, J- Japan was the only country that had a better infant mortality rate than the United States. And as the United States has added new vaccines to the immunization schedule, every time they add new vaccines to the immunization schedule, our infant mortality rate drops. It gets worse. Today, we, are the 40, we have the 42nd uh, best, I guess, best, 42nd, you know, we're, we're number 42 in terms of infant mortality rate. Okay, this is a big leap, what I'm about to say here, but we have an epidemic of chronic pain. Now, many of us that are adults now and uh, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on and so forth, now we, can, we allude a lot of the chronic pain issues to diet and so on and so, so forth, but many of us received all of these vaccinations, polio vaccinations, and on and on, the list goes on. Do you think that having a history of being vaccinated um, could attribute or could cause a problem in uh, older age or along the life. Absolutely, course. absolutely. In fact, there are several studies that have shown that these vaccines have long-term effects. That's a big part of the problem: is that that it's difficult to make to 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 to, to make the connection because you know it, this is why we need to do these these long-term longitudinal studies in vaccinated versus unvaccinated children, and then follow them out into adulthood, and then let's. Let's do a comparison of, of vaccinated and unvaccinated children. Let's compare their IQs. Let's compare their, 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 their number of hospital and, and doctor visits. Let's compare how many diseases that they have in these vaccinated and unvaccinated populations. I've been calling for this for, for more than, you know, 20 years, actually, um, you, you know, these, these longitudinal studies. But keep in mind, the vaccines that you received or the vaccines that I received, it's not nearly what the children today are receiving. I mean, you know, people that are in their 40s or 50s today, they received maybe the smallpox vaccine, the polio. Mm -hmm. In the 60s, they got measles 
And then later in the late 60s, they got mumps and rubella. That was about it. You know, maybe, DP, maybe uh, pertussis vaccine, tet- tetanus. But today, I mean, they're, they're getting dose after dose after dose. I mean, we've, we've added pneumococcal, meningococcal, prev- you know, uh, they're, they're giving hepatitis B. They're right. giving, um, you know, they've got a vaccine for, for rotavirus. Uh, for, it's a, basically a, a diarrhea vaccine. I mean, it, the, the kids are just being overloaded. And for many schools to enter into the schools, they have to have the vaccination, proof of vaccination. Well, that's what they're, that's, you know, well, the, the flip side of the coin that they, they forget to say or they, they conveniently, you know, omit is that nearly all states offer exemptions to these, uh, to these so-called mandatory vaccines. Um, in fact, again, if people get up to my Think Twice website, I've got, I've got a link up there on, on vaccine laws, and people can get information about uh, you know, if they, if they decide they don't want to vaccinate their kids um, and they still want to put them into public schools, um, you know, I, I can walk people through that process. My website walks people through that process of, of writing an exemption letter so that their kids can still be getting to school without vaccines. So, Neil, what's your response to this? Uh, there are those who insist that the unvaccinated children can actually be disease carriers, putting the rest of the population at risk. What do, you, what do you say to that? This is the biggest bunch of nonsense that I've ever heard. And, in fact, it, it just it blows my mind that people buy into this. I mean, basically what that, what that idea is saying is that, uh, that the, va- the, the, the unvaccinated have to be vaccinated to protect the vaccinated. Basically, the, the, it's basically an admission that their vaccines are ineffective. You know, in almost every outbreak of, of the, you know, of the, you know, when we have an outbreak of, for example, measles, mm-hmm. Upwards of 99% of the cases are in the vaccinated population, okay? So, you know, and they try to, you know, the authorities try to say that it's the unvaccinated children that are spreading disease to the vaccinated. This is nonsense. If the vaccines that these, that these people received are effective, then they don't have to worry about any disease floating around from, you know, you know imaginary d- disease carriers spreading it from, from from unvaccinated people. And I'll tell you something, the exact opposite is true. If you read the, 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 and what I'm saying is it's actually the people that were vaccinated, it's the children that were vaccinated, especially with these live viruses that are a danger to other people. And, and um, this is, if you read, and I have read, and I do uh, discuss this in my books, and especially in the vaccine safety manual, my latest book, and, and I've got information in there uh, coming directly from the manufacturer's product inserts. If you read what the manufacturer actually lists, they warn people that if you've, got, uh, if you've been recently vaccinated with a live virus vaccine, and we're talking about like measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, some of the flu vaccines, you can actually spread that disease to people with compromised immune systems or people that are susceptible. And, and, and that happens all the time, that the vaccinated children actually spread the disease to other people. And, and they have a, a euphemistic term that they use for these, these cases. They call them secondary transmissions. This means when a vaccinated person gives the disease to someone else, uh, you know, they call them secondary transmissions. So these are well documented in the medical literature. They just don't like to talk about it. Thanks. We're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, we're going to talk specifically about H1N1, swine flu, and flu vaccines. I'm speaking with Neil Miller. 
He's the author of the Vaccine Safety Manual for Concerned Families and Health Practitioners. And a website that you would, may want to go to is www.thinktwice.com. And we're going to take a brief break and we'll pick it up and we'll take calls as well in the second half of the show. Welcome back to Healthy Options. This is Cynthia Swan. We're on 102.9 FM in Bangor, 89.9 FM Blue Hill, and WERU.org streaming online. My guest is Neil Zimmer. We're talking about vaccine safety. And Neil is the founder of the Global Think Twice Institute. Website is thinktwice.com. Neil, um, let's go right into the H1N1, the vaccines. What has your research revealed about that? Well, the H1N1, I mean, a lot of people don't, don't realize that um, swine flu is really just a, a variation of seasonal flu. In fact, uh, most medical doctors are saying it's not, you know, it may actually be, even be milder this year than, than most seasonal flu vaccines. Um, you know, so there's a lot of hype being spread around this. A lot of people need to uh, realize that um, 80% of the uh, flu vaccines uh, currently out there, uh, in fact, up on my website, I just recently posted the, uh, there's, four va- there's four manufacturers that have currently been licensed to, to, uh, to give out the swine flu vaccine. And, um, and I, I've, I've listed those four manufacturers, and I've listed the exact official ingredients in those vaccines. And... Um, Three of those four manufacturers produce the vaccines with mercury in them. Eighty percent of the vaccines um, uh, that are that are being released will contain will will contain mercury. Um, the, these swine flu vaccines. Um, there's there's other companies that are still working with new technologies, but they have not yet been licensed here in the United States. For example, uh, two companies are working with squalene, which was implicated in. Uh, which may have been, been linked to uh, Gulf War syndrome because it was placed in the anthrax vaccines that were giving that was. Uh, and squalene uh, is an adjuvant. Yeah, it's an adjuvant. Squalene is, a, is an adjuvant that's added to vaccines to to some vaccines to, um, but very few vaccines really because you know we don't know enough about it and and, and it appears to be highly uh, t- highly toxic and and you know a lot of people are reacting with with various. Uh, you know, immuno- immunological, uh, you know, disorders. Uh, at least that's been, been linked to, you know, t- uh, by some researchers to, to the anthrax vaccines that we, in our Gulf War vets. Another company is, is actually working with insect cell technology. They're, they're working with a, a type of a caterpillar to, to take the, to extract the DNA and to use the DNA uh, of, the, of the insect uh, in, the, uh, in the production of swine flus. But those vaccines have not yet been licensed. But ones that have been licensed, uh, do contain things like, uh, uh, you know, like mercury. So, mm-hmm. uh, 
One of the things I do want to discuss is vitamin D, and, and several studies have now come out showing that vitamin D may be the best way we can protect ourselves. And, um, for example, um, uh, a study in December 2006 issue of Epidemiology and Infection found that vitamin D deficiency weakens the immune system, creating susceptibility to influenza. A lot of people don't know that, um, you know, we produce vitamin D from the sun, and there's a direct correlation between, uh, you know, we have, they call the seasonal flu. Well, well, let's look at that. What does that mean, seasonal? Seasonal. It means we only get the flu, usually only get the flu in, in the winter when there's less sun. And if you also look geographically, as you move away from the equator, okay, there's very little uh, influenza. There's very little, there's very few cases of flu as you get closer to the equator. And as you move away, north latitude, south latitude from the equator, the number of cases uh, exponentially increase. And again, this has to do with uh, less exposure to the sun. And, and other studies have found that nearly all of us are deficient in vitamin D. And so vitamin D supplementation. I, I want to tell, uh, you know, here's, a, here's another. Uh, and specifically, I think it's D3. And there's a blood test that yeah, you can people, get that actually yeah. measures your vitamin D yeah. level. However, not all the labs I mean, you also have to look at where, what lab is, um, you know, bringing back that information to you because there's also been re- some reports about some of the labs having problems with efficacy. Well, there was another uh, study that j- another, uh, some additional evidence came, came forth in June of this year, um, and it was just published la- uh, just a few weeks ago. And, and, you know, in Wisconsin, there was an outbreak of swine flu, and... Um, and there was, a, in, in particular, there was a, a health care facility in the uh, Central Wisconsin Center. It was a health care facility for people with uh, developmental disabilities. Well, there were, there were 275 uh, uh, patients in this facility. And over the past several years, they were monitoring their, their blood, uh, vitamin D blood levels, and they were supplementing these patients with uh, vitamin D. And, and when this uh, swine flu epidemics, uh, you know, or outbreaks swept through this facility, only two out of the 275 patients that had adequate vitamin D levels actually caught swine flu. That, that comes out to 0.73% of that population. Now, there were 800 healthcare workers um, in that, in that uh, facility. I, I believe it was 800, approximately 800 healthcare, uh, more than 60 of them and, uh, caught caught swine flu, the 60 of the, of the actual health uh, people that actually worked there, the staff, the staff members, uh, actually the, the figures came out to 7.5%. 7.5% of the staff members who, who did not have their vitamin D levels supplement, uh, monitored and supplemented with vitamin D actually caught, caught swine, uh, swine flu. And, and this is a, a tenfold increase over the group that, that actually had uh, adequate vitamin D levels. This is highly significant. Right, and it's also the amount, though, of supplementation that matters as well, because if you're not supplementing enough, and, um, and of course there's a controversy about that, because there's the functional medicine people who talk about higher amounts of vitamin D3 for supplementation, and then a lot of the, um, the allopathic physicians are saying, you know, you don't want to take anything over uh, 1,000 to 2,000 IUs. Well, what I've been hearing from people that are knowledgeable in this area is, is during the winter, it's, it's perfectly safe to supplement with 
two, two to five, anywhere from between two to five thousand international units of vitamin D. There's been no, there's no studies out there showing that 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 that, that this is toxic. That, that in any way this even comes close to toxicity. To, to tox- toxicity, especially D3. Level. Well, I like Dr. McCullough's website. As a matter of fact, that's where I found you on Dr. McCullough's well, let website. Me, let me tell you another study though that just came out in July and August of 2009 because you were speaking about this. You know toxicity levels. Mm-hmm. This was this study came, was published in a in a in a journal entitled Endocrine Practice, and they found compelling evidence supporting further research into using vitamin D not just to prevent uh, uh, disease but to actually treat influenza once once you come down with the disease. Right. So 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 what I've been seeing with the figures were two to five anywhere from two to four or two to five thousand international units daily just to keep your immune system healthy and to protect against you know various types of infections and whatnot. But <clears throat> this study actually was was talking of upwards of of once you come down with the flu in the early stages right. to to give yourself anywhere from thirty to fifty thousand international units for several. For several days, right? And, for like about three to four days, or yes, right now three to five yes, days. and they're the showing window. this as having having great potential to, to to knock that disease right out. Now, was it particular? Was it vitamin D or was it vitamin D three? Well, particular? it's almost always D three. When when we say vitamin D, we're we're, we're talking D three. We're talking D three. Yeah. I want to remind listeners that we are taking calls now. I apologize to those who called earlier, but there's so much information that Neil has, and I really wanted to give him an opportunity to share this with. Um, our listening audience, but you can call a question or a comment into one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Let me give you the number again: eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. And we're happy to take your calls, and we're going to continue our discussion here. Um, talk about the talk about the link, Neil. Um, we, we do have a caller, so we're going to go ahead and take that caller. Hello and welcome. If you like, you can give us your name and the town you're calling from and your question or comment for Neil. Oh, I just I have a question about the um, Synergist virus or vaccination. Um, I have a baby whose doctors are recommending that he has this um, monthly um, Synergist vaccination, you know, um, over the course of the winter time, and I'm I'm just wondering. First of all, it's, not, it's technically not a vaccine. You, okay. you realize that? No. Okay, it's, it's technically not a vaccine. I do cover that. I've got an entire chapter on that in my book, Vaccine Safety Manual. Uh, you're talking about the respiratory syncytial uh, virus, RSV. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, they call it a preventive agent. It's not technically a vaccine. Um, but I will tell you something on some of the, stu- the studies that have come out with it. Um, it shows that... The best thing that it can do is to some degree decrease the risk of serious lower respiratory disease caused by RSV. However, what they're not telling you and what my research has uncovered, and this is, this, these are the studies and these are documented in the manufacturer's product information, it actually increases the risk of upper respiratory disease, cyanosis, otitis media, which is inner ear infection, oh. and, and rhinitis and, and hernia. Um, so, so the vaccine, the uh, the preventive agent RSV, uh, is is not without its without its risks. And then, of course, in in my book, I've got more specific information if you'd like, um, which documents you know its efficacy rate and 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 whatnot. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Now, Neil, I, I want to pipe in here. What do these parents, you know, sometimes it's kind of intimidating. You're in the physician's office, you've got your baby on your hip, and you're being told that by a physician that, you know, it is really imperative that you give your child this vaccine for their health and well-being, and you're not a good parent if you don't do it. <laughs> what, what do you, what, well, first of all, anybody that puts themselves in that position hasn't done the research and hasn't, hasn't really been, in my, in my mind, um, you know, they, they, they're, they, they're not an informed parent, and they're not a parent that has given their kids, their kids the, 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 the proper respect and, and care that, 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 that they require. If, if you wait until you're in the doctor's office before you get hit over the head with, with you know, all his, his or her intimidation tactics and scare tactics and everything else, then, then, then you know, I mean, I get this all the time. Parents need to do their research before they go into the doctor's office. They need to research each vaccine individually because it's not like a, blank, a blanket thing. Like um, we can just say, you know, all vaccines this or all vaccines that. Each one has to be looked at individually to, to look at its safety profile, its efficacy profile, how dangerous is the disease. You know, that's what I've done with my book, Vaccine Safety Manual. I've, I looked at the actual, before we even talk about the vaccines, in each chapter I look at each disease right. and I look at how dangerous is that disease if your kid gets it. Is it something we should even be worried about? For mm -hmm. example, parents don't even know why their kids are vaccinated for hepatitis B. Okay? Why is a kid, why is a child who's not at risk for hepatitis B being vaccinated for hepatitis B? They're giving this vaccine at birth. Within, within 24 hours of birth, they're vaccinating babies against hepatitis B. Well, I'll tell you why. Because the, the groups that are at risk of hepatitis B which is, which is uh, IV drug users and sexually promiscuous adults, they don't want the vaccine. Or healthcare workers, needle yeah. sticks. Well, they, 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 they won't come in and get this vaccine. And so the manufacturer was not, you know, making back its money on, on, on the production of this vaccine. And so they convinced the CDC uh, and the FDA to allow it to be, be given to babies. And they said babies are accessible. And they said babies are... are you know, a, a group that's not at risk for hepatitis B, but the reasoning was if we give it to these babies who are accessible, which means that, you know, we, we, you know, we have an, you know, an open market, you know, uh, uh, for our product, um, then, then somehow in some way this will protect uh, the people that are truly at risk. Mm -hmm. Neil, I'm going to break in. We have another caller. Um, so caller, welcome and question or comment. Great, thank you. My name is Dr. Jane Robertson. I'm chiropractor from Belfast. And I just want to thank you, Neil, for all the hard work you do. I have a lot of your books. Oh, great, thanks. I'm a parent that chooses not to vaccinate my children. So my question is, um, I've come across the problem uh, last year when we had a mumps epidemic in the state of Maine. Um, my children were almost kicked out of school. And I called the CDC and asked the same questions. You know, how, how are my unvaccinated children harming other children, and they don't have an answer. But well, can you help me? You know, well, I know my children aren't harming other children. I would have, if I called the CDC, my question would have been a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, because okay. that, you know, you know I, I know you can, how exactly, the truth is, right, your ch children aren't a risk to them. Right. But they're not trying to protect your children by keeping them out of school. That, that would be one thing if they said, we're, we're worried, we're, we're more worried then because you don't seem like a good parent, right. we're going to protect your kids for their own good. Yep. Um, but that's not their reasoning. Their reasoning is keep your, your dirty kids out of our school because they have disease, and we don't want them spreading it to our vaccinated children. 
Now, how is the vaccine effective? If you're unvaccinated, children can, can, can be risky to the vaccinated children. But, but the question I would have asked the CDC is, is, please, please, can't I expose my child to mumps? If it's being spread at the school, I definitely want my child to get mumps when he's a child because, because it's less risky when my child gets mumps or measles or chicken pox as a child. And it's much more dangerous if I don't allow my child to have natural immunity when he's a child or when she's a child. And if she goes into teen her teenage years or adult years and then contracts this disease where it can be much more risky with, with much more serious complications. See, this is a big part of the problem is the medical industry has changed the epidemiology of the diseases. And, and, and many of these diseases were essentially um, innocuous in, in childhood. And now, for example, we, we, we're, we're seeing a lot of people with chicken pox that, uh, that are uh, children that have not been exposed to natural chicken pox because of the vaccine. And, and, and then this vaccine only lasts a few years, four years, at, you know, maybe four or five years. It wears off, and now these children are going into their teenage years and their adult years without exposure to chicken pox. And that's a very dangerous disease if you get it as a teenager or an adult. So anyway, thank you for, for bringing and up do that. Do you have any other suggestion as, as to, um, I don't know, I don't want to use the word fight, but um, fight the, you know, the school district or the CDC, any other way I could possibly? No, the CDC, look, I mean, look, I mean, I'm, I'm out here, you know, yeah. Like a lone wolf. I mean, yeah. there's a few other people speaking, and we're drops in the bucket. I mean, and my goal has always been, oh, you know, my goal has, you know, I've realized early on that, that, that you know, these, they're, they're mighty, and, they're, and they're, they're huge and large and very influential, and my goal has always been to reach parents directly. And, and I can allow parents to, you know, each individual parent that gets a hold of my books or gets up on my website at thinktwice.com, they have an opportunity now to become informed and do something that, that can protect their children. But in terms of, of you know, changing the laws and changing the process and, and changing this, this corrupt system that we have, that's going to take more time. And, and the way I see that change taking place is as more and more moms and dads in their 20s and, and start waking up, move into their 30s and their 40s and start taking positions of power, political positions, uh, you know, start moving into to, to positions where they can begin to change the laws and, you know, and that type of a thing. But. And um, and also, you know, doctors like yourself, Dr. Jane, mm -hmm. who are um, who understand this, have this knowledge, making this choice, and in this community are speaking out and letting people have access to this information. That takes a lot of courage. You know, I'll tell you something. I'm trying. Too, that, that mumps vaccine. That mumps vaccine has been shown. Women that get mumps in childhood. Women who get mumps in childhood are less likely. Statistically, the, the studies are statistically significant, and I document these in my vaccine safety manual. They're statistically less likely to get ovarian cancer as an adult. Okay, so, so actually contracting for, for, for girls that catch mumps when they're young, it actually protects them. It primes their immune system and, and protects them from cancer, certain cancers later in life. So the medical industry has decided... That, that you're not, you're, you're, you know, our kids aren't permitted to have this, to have this protection because they're giving this false immunity with, with, with the mumps vaccine. Right. Thank well, you, Dr. Jane. I applaud. Thank you. And I, uh, keep up the great work. Thank, thank you so you. much. I want to remind listeners that they can um, call us at 1-866-625-9378. And we're talking about vaccine safety, and my guest is Neil Miller of the Think Twice 
Global Institute. I think we have another caller here. Um, caller, welcome. Your name and town, if you like, and your question or comment to uh, Neil. Yeah, well, first of all, my name is Stacy. I'm from Surrey, and I want to thank Neil so much for all his dedication and, and You're welcome, of course. But I have two children, and we do not vaccinate for anything. And uh, they both attend the elementary school here, and the schools all around Maine, I don't know where else, they're using the schools to give vaccinations for both the influenza and the H1N1, and, you know, um, having like a vaccination clinic, basically. So my question is, is I'm really concerned about the day that they're giving these yeah, vaccinations. Yeah, keep your kids out. Yeah, and I, I'm just wondering, like, how long? I was thinking maybe even two or three days. Well, keep them out on the day they're giving the vaccine so that they don't get the accidental va the vaccine. There's, I've already gotten so many calls and emails from people that said they're, you know, and I've seen stories where the kids have already gotten the vaccines. That, that you know, the, the parents said they didn't want to give the vaccines. And, of course, they, they, they screwed up the paperwork and, and their kids got that H1N1 yeah. vaccine at yeah. schools. So, so the first day, when they're, with the day that they're actually giving that vaccine, you want to keep them out because you don't want your kid be accidentally getting that vaccine if, if, if that's your choice. Yeah. Um, but but to be honest with you, um, if just, they're giving out this, uh, especially this uh, flu mist, uh, that the one that they spray up that nose. Right. I mean, th th that's going to be reeking from these kids for you know, you know, up, upwards of two or three weeks or whatever. I mean, I'm not suggesting you keep your kids out of school for that long. I mean, because you don't know, you can go shopping at the supermarket yeah. and you're going to, you know, you can be exposed to that. Um, but if you're keeping your kids' immune systems well and whatnot, if you are uncomfortable putting them back in school, you know, for the next couple of days or so after they've been given these shots, um, hey, well, you know what, I'm not going to argue against that. <laughs> well, is it more likely the first few days after? Oh, of course it is. Of course it is. Okay. Yes, it's of course. More potent. I mean, this is the same thing that's happened with, it's similar to, to what happened with, with the polio vaccine. With, you know, the, po the polio vaccine was a live virus vaccine right. until... 2000 when they went back to the dead dead virus vaccine and a lot of times the baby could get vaccinated and then you know a, a parent or a grandparent is changing that baby's diapers right. and we're talking maybe two three weeks later two two to three weeks after that vaccine was given and that uh that polio that live polio uh germ was still shedding in the in the baby's stool right that's amazing so you know the whole gastrointestinal tract you know is is going to be um still emanating that that uh, you know, so yeah, this is, and this speaks again to, to what I had talked of earlier is where they're, they're trying to, uh, you know, our previous caller was concerned because her kids weren't allowed in, in, in school because they're, you know, so-called disease carriers yeah. somehow going to spread disease, but it's actually the vaccinated children that, that are the, you know, the risk to the other kids. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing that, um, for me, I've just I've spent my entire, when I became pregnant, I immediately just started researching and just reading and reading and reading everything I could. And um, I remember just going to my doctor's office with all this information and basically just looked at it like I was insane, you know, the, to, to have these questions and to... Um, well, I always ask this. parents, you know, and I, you know, yeah. look, my kids, my kids, you know, my kids, my kids never went to a, a doctor. I mean, they, they you know, <laughs> We go less and less. My son is yeah. 20, my, my daughter is 21 and my son is 25 now, and they have never been to a medical doctor. Neil, where did they get their health care from? from yeah. My wife and I, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, and, and I always recommend naturopaths. Na um, NDs. 
you know, NDs, doctors. right, NDs, naturopathic doctors rather than, than MDs. And, and, you know, and it always amazes me that MDs do the, you know, oftentimes are the ones administering these vaccines and doing the damage, and then it's the parents going back to the MDs to, to try to heal the damage. It just never makes sense to me. Mm. Well, thank you. I just, I'm going to hang up now so if anybody else has to call, but thanks so much. This thank you. Great. Thank and, you for your question. Yeah. Neil, I, while we're on the topic, we only have a few minutes left, but you talk about the link between asthma and the FDA-approved flu mist vaccine. Well, the flu mist, I mean, there's several vaccines that have been linked. I've got lots of studies in my, in my book in, in the various chapters that have linked asthma, respiratory disease, and, and, and a whole slew of other, other disorders to, to these various vaccines. But, yes, the flu mist vaccine is, the, you know, the, the flu mist vaccine, actually there's, there's one of the uh, swine flu manufacturers that's been licensed to give out these vaccines is the, 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 the flu mist uh, manufacturer. Uh, the company is Metamune, and they, they produce the flu mist vaccine. And, and they, they have a swine flu vaccine now that, that is the spray-up-your-nose type. Right. Uh, that is the only vaccine that, uh, right now, a swine flu vaccine that does not contain mercury. However, it is actually the most uh, reactive vaccine. That vaccine actually seems to cause more hospitalizations in children that receive it uh, for asthmatic uh, uh, exacerbations and respiratory disorders and respiratory diseases. Um, the pertussis vaccine, I covered several studies, also have linked the pertussis vaccine to uh, asthma, too. Asthma. We were, I was hoping to take this one last question. Let me see if we can. We have one more caller. Um, quickly, um, your question. Hi, uh, Kareen from Hollowell. The, the flu pandemic of 1930. 1913 demonstrated the deadly potential of the flu. Isn't uh, the idea of the vaccination to reduce the number killed not to be perfect? Well, okay, uh, first of all, that, that pandemic flu was in 1918, uh, not 1913. The thing that I think is most significant about this is that um, there were several other uh, so-called pandemics. You know, we had in, in 1958, I think it was, uh, you know, late 1950s, there was another swine flu epidemic. And do you know today, everybody that is over 50 that, that was exposed, that, that, that was exposed to that swine flu, those are the people today that are not catching swine flu. And if they do catch it, those are the people that have the most mild cases. And so there's something to be said for people being exposed to these diseases and being allowed to develop natural immunity. Part of the problem with the, with the, with the deaths the death rates were very high back then because we didn't have the same awareness that we have, the same technologies that we have to, to deal with some of these sicknesses. Okay, today our nutritional understanding and our, our uh, you know, way to, to, to help these people in the doctor's office and whatnot is much greater than it was back then. I'm sorry, I have to cut you off, Neil. This, this could have been a show that could have gone for like three, five hours, three to five hours. Um, thank you, listeners. This is Healthy Option, Cynthia Swan, and special thanks to my guest, the author of the Vaccine Safety Manual for Concerned Families and Health Practitioners, website, Think Twice. Um, think Twice. Give me that website again, thinktwice.com. Okay, and of the Think Twice Global Vaccine Institute, uh, Neil Miller. Neil, thank you for your expertise, for thank sharing you, your yeah. knowledge, and being on the show today. 
Support for WERU comes from Inner Tapestry, a holistic journal celebrating and supporting life, featuring alternative health and natural living articles, calendar listings, and a directory of resources. Available at health food stores and alternative health centers, 799-7995 or innertapestry.org.